In 2021, we spoke with Claire McCree, assistant curator at the Allentown Art Museum, about the exhibition titled New Century, New Woman. Part of the inspiration for the exhibition had to do with 2020 being the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. And so, you know, it was exciting to be able to focus on women's fashion and connect it to social change and political activism in this way. What about the influence of male wear? Was there an effort on the part of some of the suffragists, for example, or some of those who are in the forefront for women's equality? Were they adapting such things as the tailored look because they could then make a statement with their clothing? Yeah. I mean, women's fashions, men's fashion borrowings have come into women's fashions over centuries, but this particular period at the, at the turn of the 20th century is unique because of the shirtwaist blouse. So that's a woman's blouse. It's based on the men's collared button-down shirt, and it just becomes phenomenally popular and really closely identified with the new woman, in part because it is something that's seen as you know, a little bit more masculine, and sometimes in the styling, some women might wear it with a bow tie and a boater hat, which were also borrowings from menswear, styled in a very feminine way, but, you know, kind of this interesting play between the two. Yeah, and similarly with suits, and so many women who were suffragists did embrace these new kinds of clothing because, you know, they fit into just the practicality and the professionalism maybe that they wanted to be able to express in their appearance and self-presentation. We actually, we had a wonderful virtual program with Dr. Inav Rabinovich Fox, who works on women's fashion and the suffrage movement in this era generally. And she talked a lot about how suffragists really embraced pockets when they came into fashion around World War I in women's suits, having large pockets, sort of inspired by military fashions, which were influencing women's wear of the time. And, you know, suffragists' pockets were very strongly identified with them and embraced because of their practicality as well. Claire McCree of the Allentown Art Museum. Playwright Marcy Reby has been pondering the place of pockets in women's lives, so much so that she's written a full-length play with that title, Pockets, set to premiere in August at the Diva Theatre in Scranton. Marcy Reby paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about the unfolding project. It actually started in scene study at Diva Theatre in the fall of 2018. One of the women in class, her name's Roxana, said, Paige, we should do a show to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. And we all thought it was a fantastic idea. And we made a Facebook group and we started throwing ideas around, trying to see if we could find any plays that already existed that we could do. And we couldn't really find any that we liked enough to to perform. And then we kind of forgot about it for a while. And in the spring of 2019, I said, if we're going to do something, we better decide soon. So I went back to the group and I said, you know, did anyone find any other new things? We had all been reading some books on suffrage and things like that. And we didn't really have anything that we thought we could use that would be interesting for an audience. And then one of my friends online posted a poem called Dangerous Coats by Sharon Owens. And it's about women needing to sew dangerous pockets and coats full of pockets and sedition. And that was 
kind of what got me thinking. Pockets, that's interesting. Everyone who's female seems to want pockets. Could I use that as a starting point? And then I came up with a list of some women's issues and asked my friends in that Facebook group, what do you have in your pockets? And then I just tried to match them up. And you've chosen the image of the pocket or pockets as a metaphor that goes back a long time and in reaching into the past of the Middle Ages, for example, and giving us a sense of something that you know about in terms of your interests, how that can shed a light forward in history about what pockets might suggest. I love the Middle Ages. It's been an interest of mine since I was young. Like like DJ says in the play, you know, since I've been 10, I've been interested in everything medieval. And it's really true. And when I thought about it, I said, oh, well, the, the Holy Grail, you know, a cup symbolizes a female goddess, symbolizes the womb, seems like a pocket to me. So I thought, I'm going to start there. <laughs> and I liked the idea of a quest, too. You know, the, the fight for power and for respect is a, a journey that people have to continuously seem to go on. So I thought it worked. How do you describe the form of the play? It's not a drawing room comedy. No, I, I think that it is a comedy, I hope at least, because I want to have a hopeful ending for people to, to leave feeling good. But, you know, it's vignettes, short scenes of you know one woman or just a couple of people on stage at a time, just to get glimpses from different parts of their lives throughout American history. And you do that, don't you? You have one scene that might be 1917, and then we're back in the 21st century. And you seem to do that in a way that the thread, there's a thread that goes through so that isn't jarring. Yes, I did try to make sure that there were transitional kind of aspects between scenes. I don't know if it's obvious all the time, but in my mind it worked. (laughs) Who's DJ and why did you choose DJ to be the person who's going to guide us in this way? I felt we needed a guide to get through all of the different kinds of scenes. And I wanted a character that was a little bit like me. Uh, she's not exactly me, but she's she's definitely got parts of Marcy in her. And uh, I named her DJ after two of my best friends from high school. My friend Dawn, who passed away in 2014. And my friend Jenny, although in the play it's Jennifer, to get the Guinevere connection, but it's she's named for them. It shows the personal nature of this play, that again, it, even though there are historical events and situations and some dates, for example, for marches, it's not a heady piece in that way. You know well the Middle Ages, and you probably didn't have to look up a thing to write that scene, but it seems like you were very careful in choosing events from history and wanting to get things right. Did you do a fair amount of reading? And I, I did. I looked at a lot of different feminist writers, even feminist poetry, just to, I thought that it was a more accessible way to get something interesting for, for audiences to see. When we had the Facebook group, someone had said, maybe we should perform the Seneca Falls convention speeches. And they're interesting, but they're a little dry. And And I wanted people to leave the play having something to think about, something that they felt engaged in. So I just tried to use some of the things that I had found in my research to include. For example, Catherine Heffelfinger was an actual suffragette, or suffragist rather, as the American term is, that I had found an article about in the Daily Item from Sunbury, Pennsylvania, 
which is close to where I grew up. My dad grew up in Shimokin, where she was from. So I had wanted to include feminists from Pennsylvania, and she was one with a really interesting and really sad story that I wanted to share with people. And you also were smart to include the Harry Burns story, the representative from Tennessee, that is so important. It came down to that one vote, and we know about how important one vote is in Congress today. And this fellow listened to his mom. He did. We kind of stumbled on the Harry T. Burns story by accident. Paul was looking at the script with me, and we felt like it needed something more, but we weren't sure what. And he suggested, why don't we look up what happened with the vote to to ratify the amendment? Sure, that sounds like a good idea. And it was serendipitous. We found this story about him getting a letter from his mother that he kept in his pocket. And yes, he listened to his mother, and he helped get the amendment ratified. It was a great story, and I said, we have to include it. And I wanted to include men in the show. I didn't want it to seem like it was you know, only women and we're anti-men. I didn't want that at all. You know, I'm, I wanted to portray equality. You do use poetry and song. DJ sings, exactly. and you use a lot of popular songs to underscore the themes. Yes, and I think we'll have music in between the scenes that will do that as well. And I, and I wanted to create a play that would keep people interested, which is why it has the projections throughout of the memes and other pictures, like the picture of Feb Byrne and things like that. Just because I think people nowadays need more stimulation than maybe they did in the past, and... I'm hoping that it works. Did you know all the popular songs you are using before you had to look them up? There were a couple that I looked up that I had known but didn't really know as well. But a lot of them were ones that are in my my turntable, I guess. <laughs> so we have um, we have a pink song. We have a pretender song. I think I think it'll be good, and I hope it'll appeal to lots of generations. <laughs> and the other thing is, when you talk about including men, you also include a touchingly written scene with a trans character and others who so often get written out of this story or aren't part of this story. Right. I thought it was important to try to be intersectional and, you know, inclusive of people who do get marginalized sometimes. In Scranton, I mean, a lot of times we have a very homogenous population that comes to audition for plays, but we were really lucky this time to get a transgender woman to play Blake. So that's very exciting. And the other nice thing about it is that you do have humor. There are serious, clearly serious moments, but you have mothers and daughters interacting. You have generations in terms of going back to the 19th century and how the conversation still goes on today. So those conversational moments or if they break down, that's also part of it. Uh, Yeah, I think so. My background in school was linguistics, so communication is important to me. And I think when I try to create characters who are going to interact with each other, I want to make sure that it seems like a genuine conversation that could happen. I mean, maybe not the, the colonial ladies talking about their pockets at the beginning, but I mean, we have to have a little fun and a little artistic license, too. <laughs> of course, I didn't keep count as I was going through. How many characters are there and are they one to one in terms of the actor to each one or do people double up? People double up. We have about 25 people in the cast, but there's there's about 40 roles. It's a it's a big one. And I mean, we had been hoping to include as many women as we could, but with COVID, you know, some people aren't 
still comfortable coming out to audition for shows or be in shows. So we were really fortunate that we got as many people as we did. And they're doing a great job. Everyone's characters are very distinct, you know, even if they're playing more than one character. Now, who's directing? Paul and I are directing together. You really are doing double duty. I might have a part in the play because we were short. But I auditioned also. So, What role are you playing? I play Kate. Which is strange because I think even more so than DJ, if there's a character in the play that's me, it's her. So it's odd to play yourself on stage. (laughs) What are her circumstances? She's the one who has Erica Jong's fear of flying in her pocket. And she talks about how she's glad to find out that she's not the only woman who didn't want to have children. And I feel like sometimes that's a discussion that gets pushed aside. So I I really wanted to make sure that it was included. And when I found the Erica Jong again, I said, oh, that's the part that really spoke to me the last time I read it. I'm going to try to make a scene with that. And Kate was actually one of the first scenes that I wrote. What has it meant to you to have Paul? You two have worked together closely. You've written together and acted and directed and been involved in productions together. What has it meant to have him as someone you can show your script? I mean, he's he's really, he's my writing buddy. We share scripts with each other and things that we've written all the time. It's really invaluable. He gives a lot of serious, it's gentle advice, but he he's not afraid to cut to the bone if something isn't working or or shouldn't be there or seems like it's off. And his directing skills are fantastic. I mean, he's directed off-Broadway, and I really thought, I want to have a director who knows what they're doing and who I can learn from to learn more about directing. And so I asked him right away, and he said he'd do it. I was very pleased. With so many scenes, you can't have scene changes every time you turn around. No, we have a very limited set. It's going to be, I don't want to give it away. We only really have a podium, a table, and two stools that we use as furniture props. But then everyone, of course, has their prop that comes into or goes out of their pocket. (laughs) And we do understand that men didn't want women to have pockets, right? Right, because because it did hold power for them. They could keep their money themselves. They could have tools of their trade in their pocket. Any any of those things. They could have seditious pamphlets to pass around to their friends. Yeah, pockets were definitely a power source. No wonder we want them, right? It's a theater space you've worked in, you and Paul have worked in before. And the intimacy of the Diva Theater, 60, 60? Yeah, about 60 seats would seem to be ideal for a play like this. I think so. I know that it makes some of our newer cast members a little nervous, I think, that the audience is so close to you. But I really hope that as time goes on, they'll feel more confident that in some of the scenes, they're talking right to the audience. And I hope that they feel confident enough and comfortable enough to do that. Because I think that for me as an audience member, I want someone looking me right in the eye and pulling me in. And I hope that they'll do that too. I think they will. And it is important when you have two acts and a number of scenes in each of the acts, Paul and you have to be very diligent in making sure the play moves and that there's the overall arc, but that this keeps turning the page, right? Right. And and I think that that's really Paul's strength from the get-go when we first started doing the individual scenes which we had all mixed around because of people's schedules, because it's the summer. From the start, he said, okay, you're going to come on here. You're going to go off here. The next scene, okay, you're going to come from this entrance and go out this way. It's great. Like, 
he's really that's really one of his strengths he understands about flow he understands about pacing i think people will appreciate it when you now have a chance you have written it you and paul have talked about it and you tweaked it and all sorts of things but then you got into rehearsal were you surprised at the power of some of the scenes yes it it's overwhelming the katherine heffelfinger scene at the end they sing a suffragist song and uh Every time I get a little teary and I had I had been that way when I read it and I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe when they perform it, it won't be as powerful. But it it is powerful and it really it really gets me. And there are some other scenes, too, that are just beautiful scenes that we just got people who really go well together. And it's it's great. And it's really nice to see that happen on stage when it's something that you wrote. It's really exciting. What would you hope for a piece like this? Just because the anniversary is over doesn't mean that the subject should go away now, right? Right. And I think that that's what I was pleased with in the long run was that it's not just a piece about the 19th Amendment and that anniversary. It's really more a celebration of American women throughout history, the ones that were named and the ones that were nameless, and the ones in the play that are actual people versus fictional characters. And you mentioned it when we were talking about the grail and you used the word power, pockets and power. How do you understand good, positive power for us as humans? I mean, I think it's other people respecting you and respecting your choices, not only in you know politics or religion, but in your own being, in your own person. And I think equality is a big part of that. Everyone should have a say in in what they feel and what they believe and what they want from life. You know, DJ says at the end, it's not pie. You know, you don't get a smaller piece because I get a bigger one. It, it's there for everyone. Equality and power are there for everyone. And, and everyone should have a chance to embrace them. Playwright Marcy Reby of Diva Theater speaking with us about her original play titled Pockets that will be presented in August at the Diva Theater in Scranton, co-directed by Paul Gallo. The play was slated to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, and as we've heard from Marcy, it's broader than that. Performances are August 5th, 6th, 12th, and 13th at 8 p.m., and August 7th and 14th at 2 at the Diva Theater in the Old Brick Theater at 126 West Market Street in Scranton. That's Pockets by Marcy Reby, directed by Marcy Reby and Paul Gallo. Performances the 5th, 6th, and 7th of August and 12th, 13th, and 14th. The evening performances are at 8 p.m., And then there are Sunday matinees, August 7th and 14th at 2. Reservations are strongly suggested because of the intimacy of the theater, the Old Brick Theater, 60 seats approximately. So it's Diva Theater, the Old Brick Theater, 126 West Market Street in Scranton. 